0: welcome to new mexico in focus the podcast for june 24th 2022 i'm your host lou devizio senior producer here at new mexico pbs i'm replacing executive producer kevin mcdonald who's moving on to a new professional opportunity we're sorry to see kevin go he's been a leader here he's been a mentor for myself and everyone else at the station for years now He's built a strong foundation and all of us at New Mexico in Focus and New Mexico PBS will do everything in our power to carry on that legacy by continuing to bring you context and perspective on the stories impacting our state. Coming up on this episode of the podcast, we're going to hear a firsthand account of the damage caused in northern New Mexico, first by the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire and now from flooding from those heavy rains on those scorched lands. Paula Garcia is the Executive Director of the New Mexico Esequia Association, and she'll explain how those vital water systems have been impacted. We're also going to get into the Otero County election certification saga with New Mexico Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver. She's been a leading force in getting that election certified, but she acknowledges this is a troubling development in the state of our democracy. We're going to also hear from our line opinion panelists this week on a new poll out in the governor's race. Before we get into any of that, we have to talk about the Supreme Court decision announced earlier this morning overturning Roe v. Wade and opening the door for states to ban abortion. Those protections have been in place for 50 years, but in a 6-3 vote, the conservative majority has made their mark. Here in New Mexico, abortions are still legal, despite the court's decision. That's because we don't have any laws banning the procedure, unlike many other states. Immediately following the announcement Friday morning, New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham issued a statement saying, quote, The moment we have long dreaded has arrived, and our nation will be the worse for it. Here at New Mexico in Focus, we're working to bring you everything you need to know about how this decision will impact New Mexico. We know people are allowed to travel to states where abortion is allowed and have that procedure conducted there. The president has even encouraged it uh, during his press conference Friday, so we can expect an influx from Texas. But it remains to be seen how significant that will be. We'll be tracking that angle and many others as the impact of the Supreme Court decision spreads. For now, I want to shift our focus back to the election drama in Otero County. I spoke with Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver Thursday for her perspective. New Mexico Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver, thank you for joining me.
1: My pleasure, thanks for having me. Uh,
0: So I just wanna catch everyone up quickly um, on this situation in Otero County. Uh, Commissioners there initially voted three to nothing not to certify primary election results from their county at the beginning of the month. That's without any evidence to do so. Your office then sued and the state Supreme Court promptly ordered those commissioners to certify the results. Days later, they complied with a two to one vote and now those results, they're certified, that part's over. But that lone dissenting vote belongs to Coy Griffin who openly admitted his decision wasn't based on facts or evidence, but instead of feeling he had about voting machines. How dangerous is a statement like that, but also the concrete reality that his vote is still on the record?
1: Well, I think the whole situation was pretty dangerous. It brought us really close to the brink of of a collapse of our democratic process here in New Mexico. I mean, the thing to keep in mind is that had those election results not been certified, by the deadline, which was last Friday, the date they actually finally did come together and certify. What would have happened is that for every office on the ballot in Otero County that was contained entirely within that county, they would have essentially been throwing the votes of every voter who cast a ballot in those races into the trash. None of those candidates would have been able to appear on the general election ballot, including importantly, one of the county commissioners himself who eventually did vote in favor of certification. Furthermore, it's not the county commission's role uh, to have feelings about voting machines and and to make decisions about certification based on those feelings. They are there to make sure a canvas of the election was conducted, that the county clerk did her job and to sign off on that. So the the fear is that if if activities like this continue to occur, especially because they're so politically motivated, um, we may have a breakdown of our election process in the future, and we really did not want that to Happen either now or in November of this year.
0: Right. I know that is a concern. And I assume that's part of your calculus when you referred commissioners to the Attorney General for possible civil or criminal charges for violating the election code. Have you heard an update on that process?
1: YOU KNOW, WE'RE we're, uh, GOING TO BE uh, CONTINUING TO COMMUNICATE WITH THE ATTORNEY GENERAL'S OFFICE. OBVIOUSLY, THEY'RE they're THE CHIEF LAW ENFORCEMENT OFFICER OF THE STATE. IT'S THEIR JOB TO CONDUCT AN INVESTIGATION um, TO WEIGH THE INTERESTS OF PUBLIC LAW IN NEW MEXICO. YOU KNOW, WE CAN CONTINUE TO SUPPLY INFORMATION AS WE HAVE IT. Um, AND, YOU KNOW, ULTIMATELY, IT WILL BE UP TO THE ATTORNEY GENERAL TO DETERMINE WHAT'S THE RIGHT MOVE FORWARD. WHAT I WILL SAY IS, JUST ON ITS FACE, um, THESE COMMISSIONERS uh, BROKE several laws in some of the initial votes they took and and certainly commissioner griffin um, continued to violate the law with his no vote on uh, last friday
0: right with all that in mind would you continue to support charges if the attorney general were to reach that decision
1: yeah, it's it's a hard thing to say because ultimately what we wanted was the right outcome. We wanted uh, the, the county commission to certify the results so we could move forward with the election process. But, you know, here we have an individual who um, openly defied a court order. I mean, that's really sort of the bottom line. You know, the Supreme Court of the state came down and said, you will do your duty, which is set forth in statute. This is not optional. And uh, he chose to uh, thumb his nose, so to speak, at, at that court order. So I think really, you know, when it comes to accountability in our public officials and in uh, following the law, uh, I think it might be important uh, for that to continue.
0: Now, Otero County was the only county where commissioners actually voted down results, but we also saw protests at other places, heckling at commission meetings in uh, Torrance County, Sandoval County. Uh, That's despite, again, there being no evidence of any issues. This is broad, but how do we combat this public perception that there are problems?
1: Well it's a big challenge and it it needs to be combated on a couple of different fronts. First of all, I think County clerks and I have been talking, uh, you know, we talk all the time, but especially in the last couple of weeks around these new developments, there's obviously work that we need to do to help more fully educate our county commissioners on the election process and on election law, what their role is and is not in the election process. You know, county commissions really have a minor role. Um, they, They have a role to make sure certain things have gotten done to be that independent entity that verifies that, but they are not in charge of elections IN THE STATE. Um, HOWEVER, IF IT HELPS THEM TO BETTER UNDERSTAND THE ELECTION PROCESS, WE SHOULD ABSOLUTELY DO THAT. RIGHT NOW, THEY ARE ONLY, YOU KNOW, THESE COUNTIES ARE ONLY OPEN TO LISTENING TO ADVICE FROM PEOPLE WHO ARE NOT ELECTION EXPERTS AND WHO DON'T ACTUALLY UNDERSTAND NEW MEXICO ELECTION LAW. SECONDLY, WE NEED TO DO A BETTER JOB EDUCATING THE PUBLIC IN GENERAL ABOUT HOW OUR ELECTION PROCESS ACTUALLY WORKS AND ALL THE STEPS WE ALREADY DO TAKE TO SECURE THE INTEGRITY OF OUR ELECTIONS.
0: Sure. Uh, Sorry, one more hammer on this Otero County situation, but you brought up November. If in the mind of Griffin or these other commissioners, Griffin who openly disputed this and defied that court order, if if it doesn't have to do with evidence or facts and it just boils down to if they want to dispute it or not, what then? Do you just have to rely on the court system?
1: Uh, unfortunately, yes. I know I'm certainly having conversations with some of our legislators uh, about, you know, is there a way that we can build, uh, or excuse me, build a fail safe into this process? Um, you know, at the end of the day, our election processes are built on a series of checks and balances. Um, there is, at this point in time, no one person or entity that can determine the outcome of an election. And that is by intention, Uh, if these county commissions, because they want to throw a wrench into the works, make decisions about the outcome of election just by casting a no vote, that's a flaw in the system that we need to correct moving forward. Maybe we'll have a bite at that apple before November, but I'm not sure if we will.
0: Okay, Uh, now I want to end on another group that's sometimes lost in this election workers. Uh, I know you've spoken about this with other programs too, and that is really county clerks and all the way down. Uh, Otero County's clerk said that this was a great election, there weren't any issues yet she's caught in the middle of this uh, and I'm sure she's hearing about it from from some people in the public anyway and that's to say nothing of the volunteers and part-time workers who are at the polls. What would your message be to them and to the rest of the public who may take that leap to take their frustrations out on these people who are serving us really?
1: Well. Our county clerks, their staff and those poll officials that actually run the elections on the ground here in New Mexico and across the country are absolutely the backbone of our democracy. We could not have citizen run elections without them. So they are, my highest priority and making sure that they are safe and protected, but most importantly that they know that their work can be trusted and is valuable. And that at the end of the day, whether it be the county clerk or the secretary of state or the Supreme Court of the state, we are going to have their backs uh, and make sure that their important work uh, is valued uh, and that at the end of the day that it's not uh, overturned or overthrown or some attempt is made to undermine that important community work that they do.
0: Thank you to New Mexico Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver for her time. We talked about the implications this has for November, where we already know we're in for a tight race for governor. A recent poll from Public Policy Polling shows a narrow lead for Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. She and her opponent, Republican nominee Mark Ronchetti, are also starting to roll out campaign ads. Our line opinion panelists get into all of it. This week, Gene Grant is joined by attorney Laura Sanchez, Merritt Allen from Vox Optima Public Relations, and reporter Andy Lyman from New Mexico Political Report. Here's Gene.
2: We're getting a first look at how the two leading candidates for governor match up against each other. A recent poll from Public Policy Polling shows Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham leading Republican nominee Mark Ronchetti 45% 45% FOR THE GOVERNOR TO 42% FOR MR. RONCHETTI. LIBERTARIAN KAREN BODONI HOLDS ABOUT 9% AND 5% OF VOTERS SAY THEY'RE NOT SURE. I WANT TO TALK ABOUT THAT 5% HERE IN THIS DISCUSSION. NOW, ANDY, THAT'S A LOT CLOSER THAN MOST PEOPLE WOULD PROBABLY would HAVE GUESSED THIS EARLY ON. SHOULD THE GOVERNOR BE CONCERNED OR IS THIS JUST EARLY NUMBERS AND EARLY DAYS HERE?
3: Uh, THAT'S A GOOD QUESTION, ACTUALLY. Mm-hmm. Uh, I WAS JUST THINKING THE OTHER DAY ABOUT HOW and maybe it's just uh, my my memory's not serving me well, but it seems like it's gotten ramped up really quickly, right? Yeah. We've still got a number of months before things are technically supposed to start heating up, but mm-hmm. and maybe it's those numbers. We don't know what internal polling looks like. Um, and so I, I guess that's my, my first observation is that uh, right out of the gate, they're neck and neck. And it's just, uh, so I, I'm kind of wondering what we're gonna see in the coming months yep. as uh, things shift.
2: Good point there. You know, Merritt, when you think about it, if it had shown, say, like a 10 point gap for the governor, you know, 12, 13, whatever, that's one thing. This close, I got to think the Ron people are thrilled to have the very first poll out of the gate, a public poll, having it be this close. What does that do to a campaign, you know, concerning his history, and, of course?
4: Well, let's look back at the primary. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Ron Ketty shifted focus a couple weeks before the primary, which um, up. Until then, uh, right as early voting started, had been who is more loyal to Trump and who's going to do more about border security. Right. And suddenly he started running against the governor. Yes. And THAT WAS A NOTED SHIFT AND HE uh, DECIDED THAT HE HAD ALREADY WON THE PRIMARY AND HE WAS GOING TO START RUNNING A GENERAL ELECTION CAMPAIGN AND THAT'S HOW HE FINISHED OUT THE PRIMARY AND SO I THINK HE POSITIONED HIMSELF AND STARTED the MOVE TO THE CENTER AWAY FROM THE HARD RIGHT mm-hmm. AND uh, STARTED CAMPAIGNING AGAINST uh, uh, THE GOVERNOR EARLY WHILE HE WAS STILL uh, REALLY COMMANDING AIRTIME AND THE INTEREST OF ALL VOTERS mm-hmm. AND THAT WAS ALSO OF COURSE uh, THE GOVERNOR SHE STARTED THOSE REALLY SMART 15 SECOND ALMOST uh, PUBLIC SERVICE ANNOUNCEMENTS ABOUT THE GREAT THINGS SHE HAD DONE FOR THE STATE AND SO uh, I FEEL THAT RON KEGGIE HAS ANSWERED HER um, POINT FOR POINT uh, REALLY EFFECTIVELY SO mm-hmm. NO I'm, I'M NOT SURPRISED BUT LET'S ALSO REMEMBER uh, HE uh, uh, finished better than anyone thought he would in his Senate race as a relative newcomer. Uh, I mean, when you run for your first office with no political experience whatsoever, um, no managerial experience whatsoever, and you run for U.S. senator, that's a pretty big move. Yeah. So um, I would say uh, people want to uh, call on his experience and say he's a political neophyte. I think the amount of money he raised and his strong showing in his first Senate campaign makes him ready to take on the governor.
2: Just mm-hmm. as an interesting point there for folks that might not recall, Democrat Bernard Luhan won with 51.7% to 45.6% for um, Mr. Ketty, a lot closer than folks uh, might have guessed at the time. Laura, interesting this approval ratings. I'm always kind of this approval disapproval thing. The governor is showing 48% approval, 48% disapproval. Does that mean anything in the long haul, or, or as we get closer to election day? What, what does that actually mean when you hear people disapprove of somebody's performance?
5: Well, I think it's important to remember that approval, disapproval rates—they're um, a point in time, right? Yeah. They're, they're definitely a point in time, as are the as is the public poll that we just talked about. Yep. You know, New Mexico um, elections are always close, at least since I've. You know, been paying attention to elections. Mm-hmm. It always seems to be extremely close, and um, so as we as we get closer to the elect to election day, we're going to see a lot of things um, shifting. But you're, I don't think anybody should be taking this one for granted. That's the worst thing the Democrats can do. That's the worst thing that Michelle Lujan Grisham can do, and I think that she's she's definitely you know she's got a lot of fight in her. Um, she's A SEASONED PROFESSIONAL, SHE'S DEFINITELY uh, VERY GOOD ON THE STUMP, Mm -hmm. SHE'S ALSO VERY GOOD IN A DEBATE, AND SHE'S HAD A LOT OF OPPORTUNITIES TO DEBATE REAL ISSUES IN THE MANY RACES THAT SHE'S RUN IN AND WON, AND SO I THINK SHE'S GOING TO BE VERY WELL PREPARED. I AGREE WITH Merritt THAT SHE WAS VERY EFFECTIVE WITH with THE SHORT SORT OF ALMOST PSA-LIKE ADS THAT SHE DID LEADING UP TO THE ELECTION. Rather than staying out of it completely, I should say, leading up to the primary, rather than stay out completely, she took the opportunity to introduce herself in a positive way um, and really speak to uh, you know the average New Mexican. Mm-hmm. And she also has some also some very good positives. So you know traditionally you see the first few ads are supposed to be introductory ads. What are you about? You know who, who what are you bringing to the table? Why are you running for this position? That sort of thing. And then the next few ads often you have like the Tom Romero ad. Um, former uh, Bernalillo police chief Tom Romero, who's talking about um, RONCHETTI'S lack of experience and that he's a, a weatherman. Mm-hmm. And so he basically that you know, those sorts of ads then come next traditionally where you have somebody sort of vouching for you. So we can expect that RONCHETTI probably will have something similar um, with a high profile person talking about his you know, him being the best person. And then you start to see the negative attack ads, right. But in New Mexico, we seem to you know, we don't necessarily always follow that cadence. RIGHT? AND SO I THINK we're IT'S GOING TO GET UGLY QUICKLY, mm-hmm. LIKE IT HAS IN EVERY OTHER ELECTION WE'VE SEEN RECENTLY. AND EVEN THOUGH IT SEEMS LIKE, a YOU KNOW, RIGHT NOW when WE'RE IN THE MIDDLE OF SUMMER, IT SEEMS LIKE A LONG WAY AWAY, IT'S ONLY FOUR AND A HALF MONTHS AWAY. RIGHT. Uh, THAT REALLY IS NOT VERY LONG TO DO ALL THE MONEY RAISING, TO DO ALL THE um, ORGANIZING, YOU KNOW, TO DO EVERYTHING THAT NEEDS TO HAPPEN TO PREPARE FOR THAT ELECTION DAY AND THAT ELECTION PERIOD, WHICH AS WE KNOW, IS LONGER THAN JUST ELECTION DAY. Mm-hmm. SO WE'RE GOING TO START TO SEE A LOT MORE OF THE NEGATIVE STUFF COMING QUICKLY and i hope that we can see some also some very good um debates and some real issues discussed uh, from both sides
2: the debate should be fascinating there's there's no doubt i'm glad you uh, two of you brought that up you know andy on the aforementioned uh, tv ads um not necessarily the ones introducing the governor reintroducing but attacking mr ronchetti for something he seems kind of proud of which is his lack of experience you know mr trump started this trump trend of course by running and winning on being an outsider uh, you know but as as was mentioned by Laura. The governor has a long list of accomplishments, all of which are a product of knowing how to govern. I'm curious how the the public might, through your eyes, see this this idea of governing versus just being a personality, and having that be enough to take you over the finish line here.
3: Yeah, I think it's obviously time will tell, but uh, mm-hmm. there's seems to be a trend uh, all over the place, and and. I'm, maybe I'm missing some Democratic uh, candidates, but you've got uh, um, Dr. Oz running in Pennsylvania. The the gubernatorial race in Arizona mm-hmm. is seeing a, a Trump endorsed um, former uh, newscaster. Right, so it's sort of this uh, recognizable face right. uh, outsider. You know, I'm going to come in and clean th- things up. I think uh, we've seen some successes in in our history, our country's history of that, but. Um, YEAH, I THINK IT WILL BE INTERESTING TO SEE WHERE THIS ALL GOES IF WE'RE GOING TO SEE uh, THE PENDULUM SWING THE OTHER WAY AND SAY NO MORE OUTSIDERS. WE WANT PEOPLE THAT ACTUALLY uh, UNDERSTAND
2: RUNNING a, AN ADMINISTRATION. Mm-hmm. I'VE HAD OTHERS SAY THAT VERY SAME THING, THAT THAT FEVER IS GOING TO BREAK AT SOME POINT AND AT THE VERY END YOU got TO FIGURE OUT WHO CAN PUT TOGETHER a, govern- a GOVERNMENT THAT'S ACTUALLY FAIRLY COMPLICATED AND BE THE LEADER OF THAT. Uh, Merritt, INTERESTINGLY, um, I'M STILL IN THIS WEATHERMAN THING, THE TRUSTED WEATHERMAN DEAL, BUT AGAIN, IS HE VULNERABLE ON CLIMATE CHANGE AND WILDFIRES? AND I'M WONDERING IF THE GOVERNOR HAS AN OPENING HERE BECAUSE MR. RONCHETTI HAS NOT EXACTLY BEEN TRUTHFUL ABOUT THIS IDEA OF of CLIMATE CHANGE. HE'S DISPUTED IT. IS THIS A VIABLE POSITION FOR THE GOVERNOR TO GO AFTER MARK RONCHETTI ON?
4: WELL, HE CERTAINLY HAS GOTTEN uh, BACKED INTO A CORNER IN PRIMARIES, Mm -hmm. AND THAT'S A PROBLEM. Uh, for Republicans is uh, the orthodoxy requirement is so strict mm-hmm. uh, in the Republican uh, primary that you really can't offer your own opinion on anything. And uh, I think uh, I think the governor certainly would be remiss not to point that out. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it, it's old. I MEAN, THE the COMMENTS ARE OLD BECAUSE HE DID THEN RUN ADS TALKING ABOUT HIMSELF AS A SCIENTIST AND HE Mm -hmm. DID CORRECT THE RECORD SOMEWHAT. Um, HE'S ABSOLUTELY WILLING TO FLIP-FLOP. HE'S DEMONSTRATED THAT. Um, YOU -hmm. KNOW, HE'S A TRUMP DENIER. NO, HE'S THE BIGGEST TRUMP SUPPORTER EVER. WELL, um, WHICH IS HE? Um, HE'S CERTAINLY WILLING TO SAY WHAT IT TAKES uh, uh, to, TO WIN ELECTIONS. Um, AND THAT MAY BECOME AN ACHILLES HEEL FOR HIM IF uh, THE GOVERNOR'S uh, CAMPAIGN PEOPLE ARE SMART ABOUT IT
2: mm-hmm.
4: uh, AND I, I THINK THAT'S uh, POSSIBLY uh, his, HIS BIGGEST WEAKNESS AND HIS uh, AS I SAID BEFORE ACHILLES HEEL HOWEVER uh, YOU KNOW THE GOVERNOR THE RECORD uh, SHE LOWERED TAXES I MEAN SHE MOVED TO THE CENTER IN THE SESSION SHE LOWERED TAXES BUT REALLY NOT IN A MEANINGFUL WAY Um, The gross receipts tax uh, cut the social security, uh, the tax on social security has been something the state's been screaming for for a long time. And so um, that uh, I feel like. Uh, had to happen. I feel her advocacy with the wildfires has been good, but the statement she just made about not accepting migrants, uh, I think the journal had an excellent editorial about it really uh, political showmanship. Mm-hmm. Uh, CYFD, if Ron Kelly does not hit her on CYFD, he's making a huge mistake. Right. So I think the governor has her own vulnerabilities here.
2: I'M GOING TO ASK THE GUYS IN THE BOOTH TO STEAL ME ONE MORE MINUTE HERE. I WANT TO ASK LAURA ABOUT THIS. Uh, REAL QUICK, LAURA, IF WE COULD. THE GOVERNOR HOLDS ABOUT A 64%, uh, YOU KNOW, HISPANIC AND LATINO VOTE AS IT STANDS NOW. I MEAN, THAT'S uh, A BIG HILL TO CLIMB FOR MARK Ketty IF YOU CAN'T GET THE HISPANIC AND LATINO VOTE here, is this, DOES THIS BODE WELL FOR THE GOVERNOR?
5: I THINK IT ABSOLUTELY DOES. I THINK THAT, YOU KNOW, NEW MEXICO HAS BEEN VERY INTERESTING WHEN IT COMES TO uh, Hispanic voters. Yeah. Uh, when you look at the race when Susana Martinez was elected, um, you know a lot of people that traditionally voted Democrat in Northern New Mexico. Um, it's not that they voted for her necessarily; they just didn't vote. Something didn't connect with them. Right. When it came to Diane Denish, and so many of them, you saw an undervote um, in that election. Mm-hmm. And you know, people got comfortable with Susana Martinez being the first Hispanic. Um, Governor OF New Mexico, A female governor, and the Republican was not sort of a, a huge thing. It, it was politically, but I think in terms of identity, there was a source of pride there right. as well. I think you see here, uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham comes from a very you know Hispanic, long, long-standing roots in New Mexico. The Lujan family also Republican ties. Yep. I mean, not completely Democrat if you look back uh, at her family history, but I think there's an enormous sense of pride there in terms of support among. Um, Hispanic voters, and so provided that they uh, show up, and that's always the issue, right? Um, mm-hmm. You want to make sure that there's uh, a concentrated effort to make sure that folks show up, and that they are taken seriously, that their issues, their concerns day to day, are being addressed. And I think that's definitely part of the strategy that she will incorporate, and, and that she will do well. She's enjoyed their support for a long time, sure. and Ketty's going to have a hard time breaking um, any of that uh, that group. I mean, it's not a monolithic voting block. But it's still going to be very difficult for him to peel off very many votes from that.
0: Thanks, Gene, and the rest of our panel for that conversation. The impact of wildfires and now flooding are weighing on northern New Mexico. The consecutive disasters have destroyed infrastructure along the areas of sequias, which are vital to the landscape and the livelihoods of the people who live there. Earlier this week, I caught up with Paula Garcia, the executive director of the New Mexico Ezechia Association, to learn about the struggles her community is facing. There's been a lot of environmental strain on the northern part of the state recently with uh, the fire, and specifically the Hermits Peak Canyon fire. And now flooding concerns. I, I know it's hard to describe or characterize an entire area that you cover. Um, but what have you seen in the past few months, first with the fire and now with flooding concerns?
6: What we've experienced here in the in the area of hermit's Peak Calf Canyon Fire is is a major shock. It's a major shock to people as individuals of um, and to entire communities and entire regions of people that have been impacted by the fire, first having to be um, evacuated. Um, many people, hundreds of people, have lost homes, and and we're contemplating what the future holds. and And uh, there's there's some trauma. There's a lot of sadness um, over the the loss of beauty. Um, these are we're land-based people. Um, there's a, a very rich agricultural tradition here and uh i work with the Secas, and so uh for us there's there's a real danger um of of losing our our headwaters our future water supply and um so you know what what the fire has caused is is devastation for for the entire region and now of course we're we're starting to get uh prepared for flooding
0: yeah, the, what are some stories you've heard from people whether it's the recovery after the fire or now getting ready for that potential flooding.
6: Where I grew up on my parents ranch. Um, about half of the the, the forested land burned. Um, my uncle has been a logger um, most of his life and now his livelihood has been impacted uh, not only does he log trees, but also. Um, uh, markets landscaping rock um so those kind of land-based businesses um (laughs) livelihoods ranching you know grazing logging um landscaping material selling um trees for landscaping those those livelihoods are uh devastated by this fire and I, i i always think that that this place it's to me it's a magical place um it's a place of great beauty um but it's also a place of of um or people can still earn at least until this fire people could still earn a living from the land and and these are low-income families they're not rich and we've managed to figure out what it takes to live in this land and for it to burn in such a tragic and extreme way on such a large scale um, it's a major shock and it's it's complete it's very devastating we're talking about economic collapse and ecological Collapse. It's hard to see the mountains black in many of these places. It's I'm sure. hurtful.
0: I'm sure. Uh, what's the impact been specifically on the acequias there?
6: Well, for the acequias, the impact's going to be devastating because um, the watersheds are charred. I've been to places in the upper watershed that are, they look like a moonscape. There are all that's left are these black toothpicks and ash and um we've been working with Phoebe Sweeney from Cochiti Pueblo who's a who has a an engineering and hydrology firm and, and she's advised us of what happened in Con- Las Conchas Fire in Cerro Grande and when you have a very um, high intensity burn uh burn scar like that um we're you know we're likely to see some debris flow and some heavy flooding and for a secas any flood is is bad um, because it, it it impacts your infrastructure and your fields and it causes erosion but a, a flooding from a burn scar is worse because it brings ash it brings that debris from the fire so we're worried that our uh, infrastructure is going to be damaged from the debris flows um, in past fires like the little bear fire in lincoln county we saw a sec just get completely silted over some of them got dislodged. Their and their imp- concrete head gates were were washed away. Um, so the acequias are going to be hit very hard by, by flooding that happens. We spent the last uh, month. As soon as the fire cooled off, we sent we deployed a mapping team to map as many acequias as we can in this area, so that if they get damaged or destroyed. We have the maps to to prove that we existed um, and also so that we can uh, file claims with the federal government for repairs and replacement when, when that comes to pass. So we've mapped over 30 seconds in two to three weeks using GPS and getting out in the field and having a team here to do that.
0: I know you kind of summarized it already, but how how important is it that there is assistance available for communities rather than just individuals?
6: It's critically important. It's critically important to have support for communities because this is collective infrastructure. Um, this is infrastructure that we've built up for generations. And FEMA is set up to help individual homeowners who might've been damaged and rightly so, um, and even that has a lot to be improved. Um, but as far as as um, the Ezekias, um, I think FEMA is accustomed to working with counties or municipalities. They know how to work with individuals. Even that should be better. Um, but convincing them that asetcas are a political subdivision and making sure that that um, enables us to 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 uh, use some resources from FEMA is important because the rebuilding the recovery and rebuilding is going to be expensive it's going to be substantial we need a major investment in this entire region for us to become you know viable again as a community to function just to to restore basic function
0: i know in albuquerque and other cities people might not understand everything i guess the reality that you just described of small-scale farming of the reliance on growing your own food and what this does to that what would you tell to the rest of new mexicans who don't have the same way of life that they need to know about what happened in your area and what's still happening there
6: what what's so intense about this disaster is how many people are affected and the extreme nature of the fire you know the intensity of the fire and the the potential intensity of the flooding and so our entire way of life is at stake and it's it's a way of life that's distinctly new mexican and this is something that i feel like we're the you know canary in the coal mine for um what's happening with climate change it's like the the front line of what climate change is doing to what we used to think was a stable place to live is now very unstable uh just today um there's a 70 percent chance of rain possibly heavy rainfall and everyone is trying to put sandbags at the last minute like we can't have a normal day as long as there's a flash flood watch and if there's a flood flood flash flood warning we need to get out immediately and so these are families that were already traumatized by evacuation some lost their homes you know the fire evacuations for people who are gone for a whole month They just got home they cleaned up their smoke damage and fire damage and their rotten freezers and now we're now we're trying to uh survive a flood and you know this is a a, this is a tremendous humanitarian disaster um and you know we have people with limited mobility who may not be able to get out if there's a flood a flash flood happening quickly and so it's something that um is potentially um it's 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 a it's these are disasters and it's not a one-time thing this is a disaster that's ongoing day after day after day and we're being told that flooding can happen not just once but it can happen for the next two three or four years until the watershed stabilizes and all that debris and ash goes through our watersheds down our valleys and rivers into our fields you know which we probably won't be able to plant or grow pasture for years because it's going to be contaminated with all that ash you know we have a, a way of saying in the acequias um we don't say i'm a member of a ditch is in spanish you say yo pertenezco a la sequia del norte that means i belong to this acequia and that is the idea of belonging that is so so profound for being land-based people that have been here for centuries, is that, that there's a sense of belonging and a sense of, of uh that we're caretakers of this place and that that we're gonna stay and we're gonna help it heal. Um and, and we're gonna need support. And and I I've I can say that through this experience I've learned a lot, but one thing I've I've gained more is empathy and just thinking about just anybody who's been through a disaster
0: thank you to paula garcia for being so open with us with me our viewers and our listeners i really think we're all better for it and thank you to our land executive producer laura pascus for setting up that interview Finally, to close out this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast, I wanted to send things back over to Gene Grant for his final thoughts on the week.
2: If you've had the pleasure to work with a long-term colleague, then you know how tough it is to lose them, which is the situation we have here at New Mexico in Focus, as we say goodbye to our long-term executive producer, Kevin McDonald. If you don't know the name, you certainly know the work because everything you see both on the line and the entire In Focus show was conceived, nurtured, and grown through the work of Kevin. Now, 16 years ago, the New Mexico PBS Friday Night Sweep had a number of long-term shows familiar to many of you, I'm sure, but Kevin McDonald is the main architect and visionary who guided our evolution to what we have today. I'm gonna miss him a lot. It's been an honor to work side-by-side with him. and A lot has transpired over the last 16 years A lot of ideas and decisions, but most of all, a lot of trust. That's hard to find these days. And thank you, Kevin, for everything and in your new endeavors.